I think that was a good question. So okay. Definitely. I don't know if you want to record the question again because Ellen yeah, yeah. muttered during it. She, she's just like almost gurgling. So, yeah. I, so yes. I also, just vomited on me. How are you doing a sterling job? Keep that in. Keep that in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode six of the World of Podcast. Uh, for those that don't know, my name's Chloe, and sitting next to me here is Tom. Hello, hello. Chloe won't know this yet, but the people listening to this episode will have enjoyed the vomit moment of during an interview with oh, no. <laughs> Alistair Driver. Uh, and it's, yeah, I think it's important to lay bare the perils of baby-based interview techniques. Well, the least said about that, the better, I think. Yeah, true. I mean, I was there and that was no one needs to see that. But I'm conscious that maybe new people listen to the episode or the podcast itself. So welcome to the Wilder Podcast. Very briefly, we are rewilding or wilding or restoring nature, whatever you want to call it, back to our 80-acre site just outside Monmouth in Wales. Only just started the process, completely blank canvas, which we'll probably talk about a little bit later on this episode. And along the way, we're documenting our whole journey and speaking to some amazing, inspirational and knowledgeable people. Today definitely is no exception. Yeah, it was a fantastic chat with Alistair Driver, who's the director of Rewilding Britain and a genuinely really nice man. And we had a fantastic date with him and we're so grateful for his expertise and the wisdom that he brought both to our project and to the podcast. Yeah, so before we jump into that, I suppose a bit of an update on the Grange project. Mm-hmm. We've done our first bit of advised intervention on the land, would you say? I think that's that's quite a good description and it's quite a brutal intervention in some ways. We basically scalped the land. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's not a, not a blade of grass that has not been cut on this farm. Benedict McDonald's founder of Restore is, is advising us along this journey. And that was the first thing he said is you've got, you've got too much, too many nitrates or nutrients in the ground. And therefore it's just the triffid grass coming through. You're signing very knowledgeable there. Yeah, no. What is a triffid? It's like a normal blade of grass as, oh. far, as far as I'm, as far as I'm, I'm aware. But apparently the normal blades of grass that you and I have grown up with, expecting and hoping on our gardens and our lawns and anywhere really is bad although not bad per se but because it creates that monoculture it is bad so we want some of it just not lots of it and we have to manage it or have animals that manages it for us hopefully does that make sense it, it does make sense i guess it's quite interesting that our first step into wilding looks like a very much like a farming activity in terms of removing all the grass and it being bailed up and taken away. But I guess that's all part of that intention is it to reduce the fertility mm-hmm. of the soil, which then will hopefully encourage more flowers. Yeah. And but what's quite nice is, yeah, it's been bailed up and taken away, but it's going to feed animals yep. uh, nearby. So it's got a use for it. And our hope, and certainly Bendit's hope, is that taking that nutrient away from the land will allow other kind of species to push through beyond the, uh, the ryegrass, I think is what it is. Watch this space. We've got some more interventions to come, which are... I think important need to be done and being done for a good reason and slightly terrifying. Yeah, it's going to be quite an interesting autumn and I'm hoping that Benedict's strategy will help contain us because we're feeling a bit anxious. Mm, true story. Uh, one of the enjoyable things about this journey is the kind of people that we get to meet. And this week has been absolutely no exception to that. We've had, well, I'll talk briefly about the guests we've had and maybe you can talk about the neighbours, Chloe. That would be lovely. So we got someone reach out on Instagram, Amber and Rob. They're a pretty adventurous couple. Said they're coming down to Wales for a wedding and would we like, you know, could they come and visit? And I said, of course you can. Come on down, you know, wherever you'd like. 
And then they said, okay, cool, we'll camp. And we said, nope, you're not, you can stay in the house. And so they did. Anyone that brings wine is welcome. And also brought amazing presents and things. But anyway, not that, you know, that's expectation. It was cool though, wasn't it? They brought like... I can't believe we had all this amazing conversation with them and you want to talk about the presents. Well, no, but it was nice to have guests I... come. They brought the, the carbon neutral wine. I never had that before. That was that was, that was on, on topic, yeah. Um, Nepalese prayer flags. Yeah, no, that was, they, they, were, they were quite special presents, you're right. <laughs> and then a... Even better, Amber brought this plant that when you touched it, the leaves kind of curled up, which was amazing for the kids. So I'm sorry, this is a, this is a hashtag winning. Okay, yeah, they, they were very good presents. No, <laughs> but we had a great conversation with like-minded people, and that was again, hopefully, many more to come. On that note, yeah, absolutely. I guess it's a nice example of how connection feels a really important part of this project, and that's a good example of where we formed a connection. And I think hopefully both of us came away learning something new or with some new ideas generated from the conversation. Mm. You've been generating some more connections, haven't you? <laughs> well, we're so fortunate with the community around here and we've had gifts of various <laughs> surplus prospects. So you're talking gifts. about gifts again. Sorry, <laughs> gifts. These, are, these are edible gifts and I guess it's around sharing of fruit and vegetables. And it, isn't it a nice thing when your neighbours pop round and they bring you their plums, they bring you their courgettes, they bring you your cucumbers, and then you do some sort of bartering arrangement where you give them blackberries and apples in exchange. And I think it's just been it's just been a really lovely thing and it makes me so appreciative of the people we have around us and being aware of the love and care that goes into growing this fruit and vegetable and then the lovely food it produces and how then that serves to, you know, I then served it to Amber and Rob and we all connect up again. Mm, circular economy style thing yeah. like it yeah but i'm going to move on quickly before you start speaking about my spinach because i'm feeling it's a bit of a delicate topic right now i think we're a 50 50 chance of survival at the moment <laughs> moving on so should we go on to the interview let's go on to the interview so as we mentioned already our guest this week is alistair driver the director of rewild in britain thoroughly good nice chap and a pleasure to spend the day with I really identify with his background, having worked in kind of the public sector for a long period and then steps out into the charitable sector and kind of some of the opportunities that creates. I um, yeah, really thought his perspective on a lot of subjects just had a lot of inherent wisdom in it. Alistair, welcome. Thanks very much. Great to be here. It's been wonderful spending the last few hours with you, wandering around the land and, and, and getting the benefits of your wisdom. It is one of the wonderful tangible benefits of having a podcast where you get to speak to people like yourself. Before we jump into kind of your experience of the Grange Project and also the top main topic for today, would you mind introducing yourself for people that may not have come across yourself or maybe even Rewilding Britain? Okay, yeah. So I'm Alistair Driver. I'm the director of Rewilding Britain. Rewilding Britain is a fairly small charity that aims to catalyze rewilding in England, Scotland and Wales. Me personally, I've been here nearly seven years now. The organization's a little bit older than that. I'm a lifelong ecologist, used to be head of conservation for the Environment Agency nationally. Uh, I was the first conservationist for the River Thames and the Thames catchment for 20 odd years. Um, I've had the privilege of a career being paid for a hobby, which is fun. <laughs> I think you can always do well if you can align your career with your passion, then you're on yeah. all there. And it's been really novel for me today because obviously we've had you here literally, literally wandering around the land, which is the first time we've had one of our podcast guests kind of <laughs> present with us. And I guess it'd be really nice to hear any kind of any of your reflections on on the project and our hopes for the the land here. Yeah, I, it's it's amazing. Well, first thing to say is that on the way here, I, I've come from the Thames Valley and. The roads just got progressively smaller and smaller. And the last, 
in the last 10 miles, <laughs> I was really starting to doubt my sat now. But absolutely fantastic when, when I realized I was in the right place. Uh-huh. And yeah, having a look around your land, your ambitions are admirable. You know, th- this is a great place to start with this kind of restoration embodying not only biodiversity and tackling climate change, but also to engage people from all walks of society, both educationally and in terms of health and well-being. So, you know, massive credit to you guys for being so brave as to embark on such a project. The land itself, I can tell it's, you know, it's been been pretty heavily farmed. You've got some great hedgerows and trees in the landscape. You've got lovely patches of wetland next to the spring flushes and the streams. But you can tell there's been a lot of input to this land in terms of fertilizers, presumably, I would assume, slurry, sowing of ryegrass, etc. So it's going to take a while. You know, you've got to manage your expectations. But what you will see very, very quickly, within a year or two, is a massive increase in bioabundance. You won't necessarily lo- you see loads of rare things, not necessarily straight away, but you will start to see much more in terms of invertebrate numbers, small mammals, birds, etc. It's already pretty good anyway, but you know you're going to see a huge change there. Yeah, and it kind of struck me as we're walking around that you you know you've pretty much been to every well almost all the rewilding places in Britain. So to have that feedback and have your uh, benefits, your your wisdom and thoughts has been helping us continue to refine our view of of the land and and, and set expectations as well going forward, which has, has been invaluable, really. Yeah, and the other thing I want to add is that. It's really important that we can demonstrate by example that it is possible for this to work socioeconomically and financially for individual landowners. It's all very well as saying, oh, rewilding's great for biodiversity, it's great for helping to mitigate climate change, sequestering carbon, etc. But you know, we've got to be able to demonstrate that it is a financially viable option in the less marginally productive areas of this country. I think I've already just talked at you for about half of the trip, just talked to you about some of the ideas for the spin-off and the ways in which we can make the land work for us from an economic perspective. On a scale of 10, how crazy do you think we are? <laughs> uh, 15. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I think at this point in time, first of all, we definitely desperately need people like you to be taking the plunge. You're young, uh, you're ambitious, you're intelligent, you're committed. If it's going to work, then it needs people like you to make it work properly because you've got to be in it for the long haul. That's a very, very important fact. In terms of timing, it is time for pioneers to now be starting to demonstrate. Uh, as you've inferred, you know, I have been to a lot of rewilding sites and I could reel off dozens of projects, sites around the country where individual private landowners are doing great things and making progress up the scale, not only in terms of biodiversity and climate mitigation, but in terms of making it work economically. And we can show, for example, that there's a 78% increase in jobs as a result of this kind of initiative. So, you know, we know it can work, but we still need so much more. And, you know, this, you know, I think I described this part of Wales as a bit of a black hole in terms of rewilding projects. You know, they are few and far between in this part of the country. So being able to demonstrate to people by showing them around the land, people from nearby towns, that this is working socioeconomically is very important. Absolutely. And, you know, fingers crossed at see, see, see how we, we get on with our with our project. But like, Actually, just to echo your point about in it for the long term, I mean, that is absolutely what we are trying to achieve. And, you know, we see it as custodians of the land as opposed to owning the land and it, and it will go on far beyond us. So it's just, yeah. Yeah, kickstarting some processes that we hope will outlive us and our children. Yeah. And the, other, the important thing is that you're, you're not just doing it for your piece of land. You're doing it to hopefully inspire, enthuse, encourage others. 
And, you know, we, we hope ultimately to influence, you know, more, the more of this we have, the more chance we have of influencing national policy and funding. I mean, that probably sounds like a great uh, segue into learning a bit more about Rewilding Britain and that, why was it formed? What is its most operandi? It's been around for a while now. So where is it to date and what are the aspirations for the future? It was formed seven or eight years ago by my colleague, Rebecca Wrigley, who's our chief exec, and her partner, George Monbiot, and one or two others. And I remember the time leading up to the formation because they actually came to see me when I was head of conservation for the Environment Agency. They, Rebecca came to talk to me about the suggestion that we should have a rewilding charity in this country. And I supported the idea because it's an aspect of conservation that hadn't until then been really properly represented. It's not that rewilding is necessarily a new idea. Restoring natural processes at scale, which is essentially what rewilding is about, um, has obviously been being discussed for a very long time. And indeed, I was trying to do that kind of thing as best I could in a, a government body like the EA, but very limited in terms of the scale we could operate at. So now Rewilding Britain is taking things to another level in terms of scale and really focusing on large-scale land ownership. Obviously, you guys, you know, you're the lower end of that spectrum in terms of size. But as we've already discussed, your ambition is more than just about the land. It's about It's about people engagement and and helping the movement to grow. So Rewilding Britain is aiming to act as a catalyst for this and to get it secured as just one of many options for land use in this country. I, you know, I'm a traditional nature conservationist. I spent my life creating and restoring nature reserves and wetlands and rivers that need management, you know, ongoing traditional conservation management. And that's great. We need lots of that. But there's also scope to ramp it up a bit in scale and do less management and let nature lead more. So we're, we're actively promoting that by encouraging it on the ground, just as I am this week with my tour of Wales, visiting half a dozen sites, you know, speaking to landowners and landowning organisations. And we're also trying to um, influence policy change and funding nationally to enable more of this to happen. And for me personally, that is exactly how my job splits, because I'm half the time out traveling the country and half the time working with policy colleagues on influencing government. Obviously, you tend to work on a large scale than our projects. But for someone like ourselves, how could we benefit from being part of your network going forward? Yeah, well, I, for me, the Rewilding Network is probably the thing. If I had to pick one thing that Rewilding Britain has done, which is really critically important, it's establishment of that network. And, and I was personally always keen on us doing that because I was involved in setting up the River Restoration Network nearly 30 years ago. And I've seen that grow to become a fantastic resource of sharing good practice and data and information and evidence, etc., across the country. So the rewilding network is going in the same direction. It's got nearly a thousand landowning members on it. They run webinars, they share information, newsletters, etc. Learning from each other in this growing embryonic movement is absolutely critically important. And so it's proving to be, you know, that we are now able to engage network members in helping each other learn from their experiences. So I, you know, I can connect you guys with other people that are doing well-being stuff or others that are doing educational work, or, you know, you touch, you, you mentioned gin production. Well, I, <laughs> the rewilding estate who does that in the north, in the northeast of England. So as this movement grows, there will be somebody somewhere else who is doing a very similar thing and will have been on the journey a little bit longer who can help people move in that direction. No, I'm really excited to be part of the Rewilding Britain network and kind of benefit from all of those connections. And I, I guess it'd be great to hear a bit more about how the charity has developed over the last six, seven years. Yeah, it's, it's kind of surprised me, to be honest. I mean, I, it was always our ambition that we would mainstream rewilding as an option, as I touched on. But when I started six and a half years ago, there were just three of us part-time. We're now up to 28. 
And we want to remain small and agile and act as a catalyst. But it is incredible to see how it's grown. We've virtually doubled in the last uh, last year or two. Wow. And that's because people are prepared to contribute funding towards what they see as a, a good and worthy cause. And also what we're seeing is that we have helped to influence other organizations. So you'll see the Wildlife Trust, for example. Quite a few of the county wildlife trusts around the country are now promoting rewilding, setting up rewilding projects, etc. So... The word catalyst is really the perfect word for what we're trying to be. We're not out there going to be doing it all. We're trying to encourage people to do it in the right places, in the right way, explain where it is and isn't appropriate. And certainly that seems to be moving in the right direction. The challenge comes, and we still haven't cracked it yet, the challenge comes when you're trying to influence government policy and making the step changes necessary there. But we're going to talk about that a bit more, I'm sure. <laughs> now is a good time as any to move into the riveting world of policy and government. <laughs> Well, we tend to do with our guests is, and this is just for listeners' benefit, is ask, what's the thing currently that, that you're kind of passionate about or the thing you're finding being frustrated by? And, and very quickly, you kind of said, well, if you want to talk about some of the challenges that, that we face, let's talk about policy and government. So kind of here, opening the floor for you now, Alistair, is what okay. about Yeah. First thing to say is, and I hope you've already gauged this, that I'm a pretty positive individual. I could not have done 45 years of nature conservation in this country without being a glass half full kind of guy. So that's the first thing to say. But we are now in a position where the requirement to tackle climate change and to tackle biodiversity loss is by far and away the most important issue that mankind faces. Now, I'm not in the doom and gloom camp that says, oh, we're all going to die. We're not all going to die. But we are going to be under massive pressure in generations to come. Not necessarily so much in my generation, but your generation and your children's generation are going to suffer incredible challenges, particularly around mass migration. The migration issues we're seeing at the moment are just the tip of the iceberg. Displacement of peoples due to climate change is going to be enormous. And that that will bring all the kind of political pressures. So what we need right now, well, not now, 10 years ago, but, you know, ASAP is significant step change in policy on every conceivable aspect of our daily lives that impacts on climate warming. And unfortunately, our government cycles of four or five years and desperation to try and stay as the leading political party and win votes, that is completely unfit for purpose in terms of delivering the kind of multi-generational transitional policies across many generations that are required to meet these challenges. And this is obviously not just a UK thing. This is a worldwide thing. Government cycles and the desperation to win votes is unfortunately trumping the requirement to make step change. Well, I mean, that was really very clear and succinct as to why people should take note to this. It's also worth probably at this stage plugging episode three with retired Lieutenant General Richard Noogie, where we talk about the mass migration in more detail as well, because I think it, it refutes really nicely into your point. And, you know, you aren't doom and gloom, but there's about to doom and gloom and being honest. I think it's important that we are honest with ourselves at this stage. So here's a question. What can we do about it? Well, that's absolutely the right question to ask. And there are things we can do. And indeed, there are things that I think we rewarding Britain and, you know, and I've had a part of it can claim as, you know, successes. So what we are continually doing is raising awareness of the benefits of rewilding in this case. Rewilding is just one, like I say, tiny piece of the jigsaw, but it is a piece of the jigsaw that we have expertise in and we can help make happen. So it's really important that we gather 
and promote the evidence coming out of these projects that are growing all the time. And we've got 50 projects worth of data now that we can analyze and summarize. And we can show, for example, that there's a 78% increase in jobs as a result of rewilding compared with traditional farming or grass spore management, et cetera, beforehand. Uh, we can show there's a 1,200% increase in volunteer engagement on those sites, 1,200%. That's a massive increase in the numbers of people actively engaged in healthy, physical, uh, mental well-being related activities. So what we do is that we take that evidence and we use it to dripping tap technique, convince politicians <laughs> and policymakers that this is really working. This is genuinely something that you need to take note of. Now, we're not there yet with rewarding. The government still refuses to use the word. Their conversations are still dominated by a relatively small minority, from, particularly from the farming world, from the NFU, etc. And so, you know, we still haven't really completed that mission in terms of embedding it firmly in government policy. But nevertheless, there are things that fund rewilding, like the landscape recovery component of the Environmental Land Management Scheme in England. They are supporting rewilding projects, which is great. Mm -hmm. Nature for Climate Fund is another one. And this is where we can claim a bit of credit because the Nature for Climate Fund, I have been told by the former minister, Lord Goldsmith, that that came about directly as a result of an online petition which Rewilding Britain set up four years ago. Wow. Calling for government to massively upscale the funding for landscape scale nature restoration. We got 100,000 signatures in less than two months, which secured us a parliamentary debate. And I had the privilege of briefing ministers for that debate, a cross-party debate where they unanimously agreed with the motion that they should do just that, increase the funding. And within two months, they created a £640 million Nature for Climate Fund. And now quite a few of our member projects are accessing funding from that fund. So that's a good example of where a tiny charity, and there were only five or six of us in the organization at the time, yeah. can make a big difference in the long term. And so successes like that. Um, another one is helping to make the case for natural regeneration being funded through the Woodland Grant Scheme, which is now the case, funded to the same level as tree planting, in fact, which is great. The uptake hasn't been as good as, it, as they would like, but I've had just had recent conversations with DEFRA on that as to how to increase awareness and popularity of natural regeneration in that funding scheme. These are little chunks that we can pick off and we use all the evidence we gather from our projects and our, on our network members to help justify that. That's, that's amazing. And again, it's just demonstrating the power of power of the people. Is It sounds like a bit of a, <laughs> but, but the power of you know a small team, but then using, you know, there's 100,000 people, which relatively is a small amount of the population, but then they can drive change. And it is continually hearing these stories is really useful for me, I think for us, and also hopefully for our listeners as well. So thank you for that. If you could wave a magic wand, how would you structure government in order to ensure we get the change that is required over the next decade? Well, I'm certainly not a political expert, so I'm starting to stray outside my comfort zone here. But, but, but essentially, we need some kind of pan-government parliamentary agreement that all parties sign up to now that to commit to a whole swathe of very significant changes in policy related to everything you can think of to do with food production, land use, energy, education, etc. We need a whole suite of policies. And believe me, those ideas will all be out there. They'll all be sitting in documents across government, many of which, like Henry Dimbleby's food strategy, are sitting on a shelf doing nothing. And indeed, Julian Glover's review of national parks, sitting on a shelf doing nothing. In all those documents, you will find, if you add them all together, most of the component parts of the jigsaw puzzle that are required for us to tackle climate change. We need a, a, a 
pan-party agreement that we are going to commit to all of these things and that future governments will not amend them downwards, at least only upwards. And now I know that's not going to happen, but I, you know, magic wand and all that, that's what, that's what I would do. Yeah. The government has moved mountains for pandemics and whatnot. So, you know, know, who knows what might happen there. Makes complete sense to me that you need a systemic solution to a systemic problem. And I guess, yeah, if everyone's working in silos, and I I suppose that is trying the function of the government processes and that someone should hold that understanding. But like, I think having a cross-parliamentary group feels so important because it's, you know, this is our futures we're talking about. And just because the crisis isn't as acute as it was during COVID doesn't mean we should take it with not the absolute weight that, that we should be taking these issues. Yeah. I mean, the biggest challenge we face is the fact that we can continue to buy our way out of the problem in the short term. Uh, you know, where they install air conditioning and change where we go on holiday and all those sort of first world kind of solutions. But every month that passes that we're not actually tackling the solution properly means that it's going to be so much harder for future generations to do something about it that is truly global. Yeah, so this may be a silly question, but, you know, is there a cross-parliamentary climate change group currently happening in Parliament? There are all party parliamentary groups on various things. Okay. And of course, there's a climate change committee that is supposed to have advised government. I'm not sure where that's at at the moment, but I'm afraid none of those things have the necessary power. You need something that has supreme power uh, across all parties that uh, can't be ignored. So yeah, you're right. It, it sounds like it does need that you know, significant level of power behind it. So then is there a, an argument to try and generate some sort of legal foundation to drive that change is challenging government legally going to hold them accountable and therefore force them maybe to create that powerful cross-parliamentary organization i uh, know I, I think it has to come within government governments of the world need to wake up to the fact that they should be they should be making these decisions if they are going to govern competently at least they should surely see that this is necessary and sooner or later that will become so blindingly obvious that it will probably happen but ideally, we do it before it, is, it becomes 10 times more expensive and 10 times more difficult. But unfortunately, things are going to have to go badly wrong before probably governments around the world, the necessary governments around the world, make that decision. That's, uh, it serves to show that we're not nearly as intelligent as we think we are as a species. Agreed. It is a little bit sad and disconcerting. But the, the point is, and I think the thing that continues drives me forward is that even if we make the small changes that we, you and, you and I can have or whatever, can, can push it forward by a month, a year, two years, wherever it might be, mm-hmm. that's so valuable. And that's why yep. it's still worth fighting the good fight. A- absolutely, 100%. You've got to keep on keeping on. And I, you know, I have to keep doing what, you know, I'm past retirement age now, okay? I am not going to stop until I drop. I am going <laughs> to keep touring this country talking to people like you guys, talking to people who are maybe on the fence. We were talking beforehand over lunch, you know, I will go and talk face-to-face with people who are who hate the idea of rewilding if they'll have a conversation with me. And we don't necessarily need to agree on anything, but we always find common ground. And I and my colleagues will keep doing that because the only way we are going to engender bottom-up change is by demonstrating that it works on the ground and gathering good evidence from those projects to help influence policy. That that will slowly influence change. And in the meantime, we need these major step changes from government, which will have to come with from within government. But the two together, both of them are equally important. We have to keep moving things forward. And it's not just private landowners like yourselves, you know, it's government bodies like the Ministry of Defence, Forestry Commission, etc. 
Crown Estate, big landowning bodies like them, water companies, big charity uh, landowning charities like the National Trust. All of them are doing a little bit. They all need to do a lot more and rewarding Britain's there to try and help them move in that direction. There was an amazing uh, organization and I, I will dig it out and I'll put it in the show notes. So I'm, apologies, I can't think of the actual name of it now that goes into schools and helps schools to rewild. And I just think that's a, what an amazing movement because you, you just go in there you're teaching them why they're doing it, what they're doing. They're seeing it on a daily basis. Now they will see the change of their year over the years at school. I just think that's such a tangible, beautiful uh, way of demonstrating it. Yeah, quite agree. I, you know, actually in my spare time, I've done a lot of school ground nature restoration. Obviously, they're slightly managed sites because you have to make sure they're safe and you have to make sure they're managed for the particular habitats you want. So it's you know it's only part way up on a rewilding spectrum. But you know, everyone can do a little bit. No, I, I would love for ecology to be, to be part of the curriculum. I think it's a really important mm-hmm. subject we should be yeah. early on. Well, we have got we have got natural history GCSE kicking in in 2025, thanks to Mary right. Colwell. So, um, you know, it's on its way. So, so I guess coming towards the kind of end of our conversation, I would love to hear your thoughts, Alistair, on what you see as the future for land in the UK over the next 10, 20 years and what role you think Rewilding Britain can play in that change. Well, very topical question for us because we are in the throes of uh, finalising a big report on this. 30 by 30 target, you know, the government's ambition for 30% land, you know, positive nature recovery by 2030. Now, that's a hugely ambitious task. Probably, I suspect the baseline is around 8% at the moment. We're probably in around 7 or 8% of the country that you could say is, is in good condition for nature. And so... There's a long way to go to get 30% uh, by, you know, in what we got set less than seven years. <laughs> but but putting that to one side, it's incumbent on all the key organizations to demonstrate how they think that can be achieved. And rewild, rewilding Britain is no different. We are producing a report that shows how and where we think we could achieve that 30% nature recovery through rewilding without impacting significantly on food production and timber production. So we've been through a huge mapping exercise with various other bodies, academic organizations, etc. We are mapping things like classification of agricultural land, major landowners, degrees of wildness, existing wildness, connectivity, etc. We're mapping all those things and we will demonstrate that we think we could probably achieve significant nature recovery through five, what I'd call 5% core rewilding. So, you know, quite a long way up the rewilding spectrum. Big sites, very little intervention by man because, you know, natural processes are fully recovering. And then another 25% of what you might call, for example, managed rewilding, more like most of the projects that are on our network at the moment. You know, the NEPs, the Ennerdales, the Ken Hills, the Holeswaters of this world, quite big scale, but, you know, using proxy herbivores uh, such as rare breed cattle and pigs, etc., because we're still missing all of those original native species. So we're, we're going to be producing this report, hopefully by the end of the year. And that, we hope, will create a, a good conversation about moving much further in that direction, much quicker. Perfect. And on that note, in terms of the report, I mean, how do you, because I, I, I come from, you know, kind of a, a bit of a marketing geek as well. How do you convey, what is that, is your job to collate the report, send that into government? Or do you see your job as Rewilding Britain to then distill that down to something that you know, it can be absorbed by the general public? And, and is that part of your remit to broaden that out? Good question, because it would depend on the type of report. I think in this case, it's we want it to be a bit of both. 
We certainly want to be influencing government policy in the right direction. And we have done that before with our, you know, a report we produced on natural regeneration versus tree planting and also on how to tackle climate change through uh, rewilding and, and land use change. So we certainly want to use it to influence policy. We want to use it to influence other orga- key organizations like many of those landowning organizations and environmental charities that I've mentioned. But it's also important that we distill it down into user-friendly terminology and find clever ways of getting the, the messages across more to the general public. After all, it is going to be ultimately down to the general public as to who they are going to vote for in future elections. And those, there's no doubt that parties that are most ambitious in terms of their climate mitigation are going to be this kind of parties that gradually more and more people are going to want to support. I really hope so. And I guess that leads nicely onto my next question, which is if you were to give a message to our listeners who obviously probably don't own, own you know, 80 acres or aren't in a position to kind of engage in a rewilding project, what would you want them to take away from our conversation? And what would you think they could do as an individual to kind of help promote this cause? Well, there's two things. And if I may have two bites of this, Cherry. First of all, obviously, you can do your little bit in your own little garden in terms of making it better for nature. And, you know, I've got a tiny garden where I live in the Thames Valley, very small, but one third of it is a fantastic wild pond, boggy area, wildflowers, tiny little bit of wildflower lawn. And, and I'm very proud of it. And it is for me, it's my little contribution. But if you really want to contribute towards rewilding, and I'll come back to the sort of summary definition large-scale restoration of ecosystems to the point where nature is allowed to take care of itself. So large-scale, right there, right up front. If you really want to support rewilding, then A, I would encourage you to keep an eye on Rewilding Britain's uh, social media feed, for a start, so you can see what's going on. And ideally, go and visit sites near you. Go and see them. See if you can get involved in volunteer activity on those sites. You know, a lot of sites are at a very early stage. You know, many of the sites I visited are literally just getting going in the last year or two. And they are steadily, as time passes, want to engage more and more people in volunteering and indeed in jobs. You know, jobs starting to appear. I talked earlier about 78% increase in jobs. So there are opportunities to engage with projects. And I, I think that once people see what can happen at scale and see the bioabundance that can appear very quickly in these sites, they will only be inspired to do more. That's fantastic. And I have to say, being part of something like Rewilding Britain and being aware that there is this organisation that connects us all has been yeah, really helpful and motivating for us at the start of our journey. So thank That's you for that. And great. thank you for all of your wisdom today. Thanks. It's great to hear. And thanks. I really enjoyed it. He can come back again anytime, especially if you make those awesome cookies that we had. <laughs> no, it was a real, it was such a pleasure interviewing Amster. The thing that I learned, two things that mainly measured things that I learned there was that it's very important to have organisations like Rewilding Britain there to be that independent voice. They're not landowners. They're not running a company to profiteer from this process. They're truly there to be an independent voice of wisdom, guidance, and direction for people like us larger landowners and smaller alike so that was pretty awesome before you move into your second point i'm just going to mm-hmm. jump in there and so for, for me i really appreciate his description around kind of trying to catalyze change and there was so much evidence of that in terms of well obviously the network they've created but beyond that the kind of influence having on policy i love the point he was making about the impact they might have had in wildlife trusts and then sort of stepping into rewilding spaces and the reports they're writing and the impact that's going to have in terms of then influencing policy yeah 100 percent can I go to my second point now? You're allowed. Thank you. <laughs> the, my final point was that I am going to 
now try and create Alice to this magic wand, or I'm just going to vote for him in the next election. So I think yes. he just speaks so much sense. And the fact that it makes me a little bit sad that he's like, yeah, it's never going to happen. But, you know, that's, you did ask me. I'm like, oh, really? That won't happen? That, that sounds like it is a thing that needs to happen. This independent body who really has you know, the future of the nation, the world at its heart, should be protected. So, yeah, I'm going to start a political movement just for Ali Drago, and I'll be his secretary. I will, I will vote for that, absolutely. But I, I think for me, one of the many points that sat with me from the interview was this idea that he talks about the importance of governments waking up to all the kind of complex issues that are influencing our current situation and the, and the crisis we're facing. But I think for me, governments will only wake up when we, as the voting population, start to wake up. And just little things like I always sign all these petitions I get sent around, I don't know, from Greenpeace or wherever. And like, I never really think they're going to go anywhere or do anything. But actually, when Ali talked about the fact that this petition that Riding Rewilding Britain put out, the members signed, and actually that influence policy, there is now a nature recovery fund that people are now drawing on in order to generate nature recovery. That really inspired me. And I will continue to keep signing these petitions in the hope that someone somewhere does the right thing. That's only the future of humanity. So let's just hope, let's cross our fingers and hope that someone somewhere does the right thing. And that's the way, that is our strategy moving forward. And the final thing that I'll leave you with before I do the mandatory plugs for social media, picture this in our small grade two list of farmhouse, all hunched around in the kitchen, in the stone floor with Chloe's awesome gooey cookies around Alistair's laptop with all these facts and figures. And, and it, he's doing such an important job. He's documenting all the projects that they are supporting, the larger ones, with hundreds of different data points. I couldn't even go into uh, telling you everything. But he took us through them all. And this this database, you know, I don't think anyone else is doing it. So it's evidencing the clear value that these projects are bringing to the land, to the local economy, etc. And yet another hugely valuable contribution that he and Rewilding Britain are doing. But I think, again, it's an unsung thing, but over the next two, five or 10 years, the amount of value that's going to bring and, and strength to their argument is going to be pretty impressive. And as someone that loves data, it was an absolute pleasure to see Alistair's equal passion for his spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of passion. Oh, and we've forgotten to talk about the archers. Well, I'm glad I did it on purpose. You know, not everyone has a pa the passion you've got for the archers. <laughs> Amazing. So I'm there talking about before I first heard about rewilding. And I said, oh, you know, I listened to it on the archers and, you know, Kirsty and everyone was involved in this rewilding project. And, and Alistair just casually drops in that he was the specialist advisor to the BBC for the rewilding segment of the archers. And I was like, you know, my, my life is complete. I need to do no more. And now we've lost half our listeners. You've now just like our cool level. We, we were so high on the cool level, Chloe, before you said There's that. nothing wrong with the archers. There's so much to like. If you want up-to-date farming policy, then listen to the archers. It keeps you engaged. I think I videoed that bit of the conversation, so I'm going to cut that bit of sound into this so you can share in the passion that everyone is sharing, <laughs> specifically Chloe was sharing here. So here is that sound. Drill and, I was, and then they had this rewilding site that came forward. And whatever. When I say I got it on there, they rang me yeah. to ask me, we're thinking about doing a theme on rewilding. What do you think? I said, you've got to do it. And let me tell you, this is how you can yeah, yeah. And I think we're pretty much at the end of the podcast now, should we say? I think so. So... Um, Best place to follow us, I think, is these days, I'd say is on Instagram, if that's your thing. So it's grange.project. Um, we do have a Facebook group as well. But if you do want to email us, and we've been receiving some amazing emails recently, then it is hello at grangeproject.co.uk. And the final, final thing I'll say, if you've got this far, thank you so much. 
I'm going to lean on you one last time to see if you could, once this episode finishes, if you want to quickly rate and review, it does take seconds, but it catapults the podcast through the charts. And that just means we get a bigger reach and hopefully a bigger impact. Even though I know for a fact your mum still hasn't reviewed the podcast. <laughs> I know. <laughs>